You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I was in San Francisco all this week hosting the opening of the annual Hump Tour. Hump, of course, is my little sex and body and diversity and perversity positive porn film festival, and it's on tour now. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out when Hump is coming to a city near you. Anyway, I, I hadn't watched the full program since Hump, in its 13th annual outing, premiered three months ago in Seattle. But on Saturday night, I sat with some friends in the balcony of San Francisco's historic Victoria Theater and watched the whole show. And I was immediately struck by something that hadn't really registered back when we were putting this year's festival together. Again and again, in film after film, I saw people, men and women, queer and straight, cis and trans, put two or three fingers into the mouths of their sex partners and feel their tongues, I guess? It's obviously a a power move, a dominance display, one way to seize control of someone else's orifice, hopefully in a way that they enjoy and find sexy. But I sat there... In the theater, thinking, oh my god, it's The Claw, over and over again. The Claw is the name Grace, and I'm assuming everyone knows who Grace is by now, gave to a move Aziz Ansari pulled on her over and over again, by her account, in his apartment after a date that left her feeling victimized. You've either read the piece that ran at babe.net under the headline, I went on a date with Aziz Ansari, it turned into the worst night of my life, or you've read about it. I'm not going to dissect the piece or that particular evening in Ansari's apartment or re-dissect them or re-re-re-re-re-dissect them. But after a meal, Ansari took Grace back to his apartment and repeatedly attempted to initiate sex of some form, sexual intercourse, oral sex. And according to Grace, Ansari failed again and again and again to pick up on her nonverbal cues. He failed to notice how uncomfortable she was and he kept going. He kept making advances. People have been taking sides, for and against grace, for and against disease. And I found myself in this weird position of agreeing with a lot of people on both sides of this debate. I found myself agreeing with much of what Barry Weiss wrote at the New York Times. Barry Weiss described the date as bad sex. Here's a quote. Aziz Ansari sounds as if he were aggressive and selfish and obnoxious that night. Isn't it heartbreaking and depressing that men, especially ones who present themselves publicly as feminists, so often act this way in private? And isn't it enraging that women are socialized to be docile and accommodating and put men's desires before their own? Yes, yes, and yes. But the solution to these problems does not begin with women torching men for failing to understand their nonverbal cues. It is for women to be more verbal. It's to say, this is what turns me on. It's to say, I don't want to do that. And yes, sometimes it means saying goodbye. I also found myself agreeing with and furiously retweeting what Lauren Duncan had to say. Do you know how many women have had to fake periods or drunkenness to weasel out of a sexual encounter without setting off a male rage spiral? Just saying no is not always an option. That's the whole fucking problem. I'm with Duncan. This is the problem. Male rage, male violence, and women's fear of it. As I wrote in response to a clueless male savage love reader a couple of months ago, A man's intent when initiating sex can feel non-threatening. He can be ready to hear that no and respect it. But the woman he's attempting to initiate sex with, she can experience it very differently. 
because men don't move through their lives deflecting near constant unwanted sexual attention. We aren't subjected to epidemic levels of sexual violence, and consequently, we don't live with the daily fear that we could be the victims of sexual violence at any time and in any place. Women do. So there is often a huge disconnect between what a man thinks he's doing and how a woman experiences what that man is doing because her perceptions are shaped by the experience and fear of sexual violence. Some men are aware of these facts, and that awareness informs their approach in a positive way. They've worked out how to initiate sex with a woman in a way that where she feels safe and empowered to say no out loud. Some men are aware of these dynamics and intentionally and maliciously exploit them to get what they want. They intimidate and pressure. The rest, perhaps most men, they're just oblivious to it. And that is the whole fucking problem. Men who are clueless, as Aziz Ansari appears to have been, if we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and men who are consciously or subconsciously exploiting women's fears of sexual violence. And you know what? The clueless and the exploiters, that may add up to most men. Hashtag not all men, but most men. So while I liked and gave a signal boost here on the podcast to something that Laura Kipnis wrote last year in the New York Times review of books, quote, if we're demanding that men overcome their gender socialization, are there aspects of femininity we might wish to ditch too? We have to, all throughout these conversations, take into account the fear of violence. So many women have had bad sexual experiences with men who didn't realize they were doing anything wrong. They were guilty of misreading cues or being blind to them, or maybe more accurate to say blinded to them. Because this socialization system, the way men are socialized, the way women are socialized, it's not a system that works well for anyone, for men or women. Because you know what? I don't think Aziz wanted to hurt or scare or traumatize Grace that night. Does does anyone? But she was hurt and she was scared and apparently she was traumatized. And it's not enough to say, why didn't she advocate for herself in the moment? We should say that. I say that to women all the time on this show. But we also have to ask, why don't women feel like they can advocate for themselves in the moment and say no and get up and leave? And the answer, again, is Violence, fear, terror. The ways in which men and women are socialized, it's not good for women. It's also not good for men. It is a system of oppression, as they say, that sets women up to be victimized and sets men up to be victimizers. Some men are fine with that and fuck those guys. But some men, many men, are horrified when they learn too late that they have victimized someone. We can and we must do better. All of us. All right, coming up on today's show, I chat with Sarah Silverman about her wonderful new show, I Love You, America. And Sarah sat in and took some of your calls and offers up some sex advice. All of that coming up on the Magnum and the Micro Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. 24-year-old bi-female here calling from Brisbane, Australia. I'm calling with a question about my responsibility in educating my sexual partners. So recently I've had two casual sex partners who have during sex put their hands around my throat and while I actually really like that I hadn't given them much indication that I would like that beforehand um, so my most recent sex partner who did that I broached the topic with him after sex and I said that he was lucky that I liked the choking and he 
said, um, yeah, most girls do and they don't know they like it until they try it. And I suggested using dirty talk beforehand as a way of gaining consent before he does something like that. He defended himself by saying he thought I would probably like it because I had said that I liked my nipples being squeezed harder um, and also that he only put his hand softly on my throat, which was true. But I replied saying that, well, one day he might come into trouble with a girl who has some trauma that he doesn't know about. And he said, yeah, I, I probably will. So my attempt at future-proofing uh, this sexual partner for future girls did not turn out as I wanted, I don't think, because it seems like he will continue doing this. So I guess my question to you is, is it my responsibility uh, to be educating my sexual partners for future women who encounter them? And how can I go about this um, so that they might be more receptive to my advice? It is absolutely your responsibility to educate your partners for the future women that they may find themselves in bed with. I love that turn of phrase, future-proofing. That's kind of genius and consider it stolen. I'm going to use that a lot. We've talked about future-proofing in reference to not faking orgasms. There's a lot of guys out there who think that their dicks are magic and they induce orgasms in women 100% of the time because each and every one of the women that they've been with could come from vaginal penetration alone. When the research shows and the data shows and women when they're honest will tell you that only 25% of women can come from vaginal penetration alone. But women feel under tremendous pressure to come. Guys react like there's something damaged about women who can't come from vaginal penetration or vaginal intercourse alone. So they fake it and it leaves guys with this mistaken impression of their magic dick stick and all that it's capable of. And then that guy finds himself in bed with the woman who's honest with him for the first time and he reacts in horror and shames her and it's ugly. So yeah, future proofing. I endorse it. Uh, not just in reference to vaginal intercourse and the magic properties of dick sticks, but in all regards, we should all be leaving each other in better shape than we found each other. I call that the campsite rule. Usually we're talking about older or more experienced partners with younger or less experienced partners. And I think it's a responsibility of the older and or more experienced partner to leave the younger and or less experienced partner in better shape than they found them. We should all leave each other hopefully in better shape than we found each other. That said, in reference to your particular circumstance and this particular guy, sounds like he read you accurately. Sounds like he was gentle when he put his hand near your throat and was prepared to continue to read your signals. I think people should err on the side of gaining explicit verbal consent before they bust out some varsity level kink move and choking qualifies. Choking is also regarded by many people in the BDSM scene and many responsible kinksters as too inherently dangerous to engage in. A lot of people do it. A lot of people enjoy it. They haven't died yet and they think that they can't be harmed by it. But I kind of side with the pros here, the Mistress Matizes and the Jay Wisemans who tell us that choking is risky and it can go south in an instant and that people indeed have died. So I don't recommend that people choke even with consent. I don't recommend that people gently wrap their hands around each other's throats to see if choking is something that someone might enjoy. 
But that is what this guy did here. And you do enjoy it. And he read you accurately. And we have to sit back and say, well, is that because he's so skilled? Or does he do this to everybody? And with you, it was something that you enjoyed. And he got lucky. And in the past or in the future, he may do it with someone who's traumatized by it, who doesn't enjoy it. And he may get unlucky. And I think that's probable based on his fucking blasé reaction when you warned him that some women, some of the sex partners he may encounter in the future, are likely to have experienced sexual trauma. And some of them may have been grabbed by the throat when they were violated or raped. And this could be tremendously triggering. And that he reacted without really seeming to give a shit about that potentiality. Ugh. He's no one I would sleep with ever again. He's someone that I would warn my friends not to sleep with if he were fucking his way through my social circle. But hopefully you planted a seed and he's going to think about that. Even if he reacted defensively in the moment, that doesn't mean he's not ruminating on what you said to him. Sometimes we don't get the reaction we want out of people immediately when we tell them something that they need to know. But they sit with it, it rattles around in their head, and eventually they come the fuck around. So I'm glad you said what you said. I'm glad you've made a good faith effort to future-proof this guy. But unfortunately, there's no magic word. There's no incantation you can mutter before you tell someone something that they need to know that's going to guarantee that they take it to heart. But you did what you could to protect this guy's future partners from his assholery and blasé attitude toward their comfort and safety. Good for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 22-year-old woman calling from the Midwest. I had a question about ending a relationship through texting. Surprisingly, last week I was broken up through a text. It was heartbreaking and embarrassing, and I was obviously pissed off at the guy that did that. But after I got over my hurt feelings, I talked to him and I asked him why he chose that method to break up with me. And after him explaining it to me, I kind of understood what he was saying. So he basically said in a nutshell, that he did this so he could put everything out there without him saying anything stupid or me getting frustrated or angry. He just needed to put everything out there and then we could discuss it later, which is what he stated in the actual text message. However, I did not receive this very well. I was angry and, you know, I felt like I deserved more than that. Our relationship was very caring and, you know, there was a lot of respect between us and I felt like that was just inappropriate for him to end such a relationship in that way. A little background, we had only been dating for about four months, if that, and I think we're going to continue to be maybe friends with benefits, which is perfectly fine for me at the moment. I just started two new jobs. I just graduated from college. Just wondered if you ever thought that it's okay to break up with someone through a text message. Is that just straight up khaki or is there ever going to be an occasion where that's okay? The epidemic of ghosting, of course, ghosting is people just disappearing on you, no longer returning your text messages, no longer taking your calls, just poof, absencing themselves from your lives. The epidemic of ghosting makes sending a text to officially and formally end things seem positively considerate and kind. There's some closure. People who get ghosted wonder what the fuck happened, where the fuck that person went, why they disappeared. And in the wake or context of this epidemic of ghosting, we may have to reassess our attitude towards a clean and clear text breakup. I'm old enough to remember when people complained about being broken up with over the phone, that it wasn't something you should do on the telephone, that you should have the decency, the courtesy, the courage the OVA, to do it in person, face-to-face. -face. And then that became, don't do it by text. And now, don't just disappear, seems to be 
the emerging standard. Say something somehow. Snap me. DM me on Instagram. Send me a text. Something. Let me know. It's over. If it's over. Instead of leaving me to wonder if you were abducted or the rapture came and you were the only decent Christian on the planet. There are, though, a couple of valid reasons for someone to break up via text or even ghost. Sometimes people have a hard time dumping someone because the person they're trying to dump is abusive or manipulative. I am not saying you, caller, are abusive or manipulative. But sometimes people do it by text or just disappear because the person they want to break up with is intimidating and will not allow them to break up with them, argue them into a corner, refuse to consent to the breakup, which is bullshit. Breakups are the only aspect of human relationships, of sexual and romantic relationships where consent is irrelevant. And the intimidated partner may find it impossible to extricate themselves from the relationship face-to-face or on the phone or even via text and just disappearing or sending one last text and then blocking numbers is, in their eyes, the only way out without being sucked into a conversation or an argument that they feel like they're going to lose with someone who's emotionally manipulative or controlling or scary or violent. That doesn't sound like what's going on here. And the reason the guy who dumped you after three or four months and three or four months in a marriage, the reason he cites that he gets flustered, that it helped him organize his thoughts and say what he intended to say, I think you have to regard that as valid too. Some people have a difficult time discussing sex, romance, relationships, emotional issues, and have an easier time writing about it than, than talking about it, especially if it's fraught, especially if they want to make sure that they're saying it in the kindest way possible and that the wrong turn of phrase doesn't tumble out of their mouth and cause you additional and unnecessary and avoidable pain. But besides those two reasons, I get flustered or I am afraid of you. I do think texting isn't as good as calling and calling isn't as good as face-to-facing. But in the ghosting era, in our current ghost world, least he let you know. Hi, Dan, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm in my late 20s living with my boyfriend on the East Coast. We live in a small apartment, and I'm always looking for ways to save space by buying wall storage and other space savers. The tightness and the clutter of the apartment apparently doesn't bother my boyfriend, so we agreed that if I wanted to make purchases that I think are necessary to improve the apartment, that I would be paying for it. So after a few purchases and making some changes, not only am I happy, but my partner is also really happy with the changes and acknowledges that they were needed. For background info, we both have steady incomes and contribute equally to our living expenses. I'm not going to ask for money for the changes I made since we already had an agreement, but is it fair to get him involved in the future home improvements that he does not think are necessary at first, but then sees after that they do, in fact, improve our living space? I don't think uh, these will ever be a financial priority for him, but in the end, these are changes that benefit the both of us. Is he nickel and diming you on every expense? If he has to pick something up that's for the both of you, does he present you with an itemized bill down to the penny and insists on splitting everything that he lays money out in advance on equally? If yes, then yeah, you should insist that he pay you equally, that these expenses that benefit you both in your shared living space uh, are equally shared. But you know, if he's got the car and you don't have a car and he's putting gas in the car and there are things that he spends money on that aren't necessarily about your shared living space but that you benefit from as well, if when you go out to eat, he always or regularly or mostly picks up the checks out of force of gendered habit. If you have a pet and he's the one who usually has to run it to the vet for whatever and he picks up the bill and doesn't think to or ask you to pay half or or wouldn't, 
if when you guys go out for a club or you go out drinking, he tends to be the one who gets the rounds. Ask yourself, does it even out? Is it roughly fair? Because nickel and diming, the person that you live with, the person that you love, is exhausting. It can create needless, avoidable conflict. When you look at your relationship, you have to look at the big picture. You can look at one thing in the room or one thing about your relationship and think, yeah, I did that. I want some credit or I want half the money that that cost. But if you look around the room, what else is in the room? What else is in your relationship? What else do you guys do? Is it roughly fair? If so, don't nickel and dime each other. Relationships generate conflict on their own. Life is drama and chaos. You don't have to generate it. Hey, Ben. I'm a 25-year-old from Canada, uh, heterosexual, cisgendered. And I have a question about um, online dating etiquette. So I've been talking with this guy for about a week or a week and a half now on FetLife. Um, and he's a Dom and I'm a sub. And I was really excited about our conversation. We seem to have overlapping kinks, but he also isn't pushing like anything too sexual. It seems like he's really just trying to get to know me. Recently, he disclosed that he's not mm, as experienced of a Dom. And I think that's kind of a turnoff for me. So that was the first thing. But then recently, he also told me that he's 5'6". Now, I'm not like a size queen or anything like that. And I feel really awful for calling and saying, oh, I'm not interested because of his size. But added, when you think about this, like his size plus the, you know, his inexperience as a dom, it's like maybe I won't get from this guy, um, you know, what it is that I'm interested in. And I'm not looking for a relationship. It really was a one night stand. But I'm wondering um, I really don't need your permission to cut things off, but what I am wondering is, how do I do that nicely? Um, do I tell him I'm just not interested in talking anymore? Do I just, I don't want to just ghost him. I don't think that's a very nice thing to do. He gave you really two outs here. You were looking for and hoping to play with somebody who was more experienced. You were a newbie. He's a newbie. Now, there are certainly people out there in BDSM land who come together who are both inexperienced and they explore together, they learn together, they grow together. But if what you wanted for your first dive into the deep end of the pool with someone more experienced, that's a valid reason to tell him, hey, the more we've gotten to know each other, the less comfortable I am playing. Uh, let's be friends. Let's stay in touch and chit-chat about our journeys, but I'm looking for a more experienced dom. The other reason he gave you is about his physical appearance, and all you have to do to figure out whether you should cite that is ask yourself, how would you feel if he told you you're too short, you're too fat, your tits are too big, your tits are too small, your labia is too enormous, like anything. If he cited your physical appearance, you would be wounded and wounded by the unnecessary thoughtless cruelty of it because you had another out, which was the experience issue. So you can sidestep the height thing. I will say though in BDSM land, maybe you're going to meet a super experienced dom who gets your juices flowing and then he's going to tell you he's 5'4". A lot of BDSM play is about what goes on between your ears. It's also about a skill set that has nothing to do with physical appearance. Someone can be really great at shibari-style bondage if you're interested in shibari-style bondage and not be your ideal physical type, even not be the gender that you're particularly attracted to, but the activity itself is a pleasure that you might enjoy irrespective of their physical appearance. So one of the things you'll see if you get into BDSM land, if you become a part of kink culture and the kink scene, are people playing often at play parties with people that they aren't necessarily 
intimate with, that they aren't having intercourse with, that they aren't partnered with, that couldn't be their partners because they're not the right gender, sexual orientation or something else. There is a lot of cross everything play going on because it's about the skill sets and not about the genitals coming together at the end. Also, as a friend of mine once said to someone who complained about the guy who was pursuing him, uh, who was short and a dom top, how tall are you when you're on your knees? Hey, Dan. I'm 40-year-old woman, married for 12 years, three children. Two, one is big, two are little. And my question is uh, related to my youngest son. He's four. Both my husband and I are very open. Um, comfortable with sex, learning how to support our kids for sure because we weren't taught um, to be comfortable and open sexually. And so we're yeah, trying to do the best that we can. Um, we're very comfortable with them exploring themselves and and just try to offer like, you know, to go to your rooms or to have some some private space or private time to explore their vagina or their penis. And we're very comfortable with this. Um, my question is related to my son. He's really into exploring his, his bum and his anus. And he wants to like put things in there. And in general, I'm comfortable with that as an adult. And my husband and I are both comfortable with this, but I'm unsure about when it's appropriate for children to be exploring, um, inserting objects, I guess, you know, into themselves. I don't want to give him phobias or like fears and freaking out about it, but I also, it feels a bit weird and I'm not really sure how to coach this. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question because why the hell not is Sarah Silverman, actor, comedian, and host of I Love You America, a terrific new late night show on Hulu where Silverman spends a lot of time meeting up with and talking to people who may not agree with her on social or political issues because someone has to do it. Hey, Sarah. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. How are you? Howdy. Uh, I'm really good. You know, before we get to, to this burning question, uh, there's something I have to ask you about. You mm -hmm. recently did a thing that got a lot of attention. You were nice to a stranger on the Internet, a troll who said a shitty thing to you. Guy called you a... He just said just simply one word, cunt. And, uh, but it's, I don't know, it's heartbreaking to me that this has made such news. I mean, it's good because I guess uh, we need this right well, well, now, you it's, know. It's not, it's not news that some guy on the internet called some woman he has never met and doesn't know uh, a cunt. What's no. news is how you responded. And you responded by looking through his timeline. You didn't just blow up back at him. You didn't, uh, you know, retweet it with a comment and your followers all piled on. You looked back through his own Twitter feed and found that he was not working, in a great deal of pain, broke, couldn't afford medical care. And you rallied your followers and then paid for yourself the medical care that this guy who called you a cunt needed. That's remarkable. Well, that, that's not exactly it. Oh, sorry about that. I, that's what I keeps being reported. But what happened was his. I looked at his timeline and it was all rage, all just trying to get kicked off of Twitter, trying. And, and I see that as just wanting to be seen. You know, I mean, I see that in hecklers. I see that on the Internet and stuff. So I knew it was something. It wasn't personal to me that he said it. He's doing this however he could, just saying the worst thing he can say and just saying kick me off twitter you know mm -hmm. and um and then I, and one of them said talked about his back pain 
So I just said, you know, you're clearly in a lot of pain and, you know, you, you deserve support because my therapist says, uh, we don't get what we want. We get what we think we deserve. And I see this so much played out, you know, in so many ways. And, and that's when he just, just from one kind tweet that saw him, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, he was able to just be vulnerable and like his, be his true self. And he's a good guy, you know, he's just, he has a lot of ailments. He doesn't have, um, insurance. He's having a hard time, you know, and I haven't paid for anything yet because he needs to find, he needs to get a diagnosis and all this stuff, mm. you know? So I, I, I feel guilty that there's, um, headlines saying like, and she paid all his medical bills, you know, but <laughs> I'm willing to once there's some diagnosis and some process, but I'm not just sending him money because I am concerned about, I, I want to just pay doctors directly, you know, like, but, um, so we, we aren't even there yet. But. People have lied on the internet. Well, I mean, it's not that I don't trust him, but it, I know that he's looking for pain management. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're in the middle of an opioid crisis, and it's got to be more than that. He's got to put the work in, and mm-hmm. he knows that, you know. But we're on constant direct methods, and, and uh, he's, a, he's a good guy, you know. But um, He's your friend Jeremy now, you call him. Jeremy Jamrosi, and he, I learned all of this. I had great teachers, and am I talking too long? I don't know. But no, 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 please. on my show, I learned so much each time. You know, I, from uh, a Christian Piccolini, uh, who was a a Nazi, you know, a skinhead, and 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 changed because somebody treated him with compassion. And he said on the show, you know, find someone who doesn't deserve your compassion and give it to them. And I'm not saying Jeremy didn't deserve my compassion. He does. But that was what Christian was saying. You know, it's like, that's how he changed, you know, Mm -hmm. and same with Megan Phelps Roper, who is so brilliant and amazing and grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church and just believed it with her whole heart, you know, but she's still that same person. I I follow you on Twitter and I've seen you recently uh, ask Sheriff David Clark, that odious person from Milwaukee, are you okay? And I've also seen you send encouraging words to Donald Trump. You've told him it's not too late. He can change and grow, a, be a better person. Is it? Is it on us? We have to be nicer to them, even him, to bring them around? You know, I, I hear what you're saying. And we I, don't I think have you're right. to, but we certainly we don't have to, but we can. You know, like it's like it's like wanting to be an ally to the black community, Mm -hmm. you know, and how can we do that? You know, well, it's not up to, you know, a black woman to tell me how best to be an ally, but she could, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and I see it that way with myself, you know, that it's okay. If listen, we've tried arguing and I'm, I'm not saying I'm not going to be snarky online or say, cunty things you know i'm not i'm not a perfect person i'm i'm trying i'm in a i'm practicing a new thing right now you know because i'm i'm trying to you're not saying lefties and and the left has to be on its best behavior at all times to bring around people uh, on the right who no, may all be in I pain mean, but but you are encouraging people to do kind of what i read john ronson's book uh so you've been publicly shamed and it really changed how i functioned on twitter yeah. and the internet because there, there's that line uh-huh. he writes where you know everybody piles on to someone and if you had retweeted and added uh, your now friend Jeremy, when he called you the C word out of the blue for no reason, um, there would have been a pile. Oh, he would have been murdered. Right. There would have been this yeah. pylon. And that's what Ronson calls it an avalanche. People just get buried. And he said in the book, and it really stuck with me, a single snowflake doesn't feel responsible for the avalanche. And I thought back over 
time on Twitter where I was one of those goddamn snowflakes. And I don't do it anymore. Even when I see someone getting piled on because they deserve it. I don't do it anymore. But it was a stretch for me to to think I should, you know, because I get grief from people too. I get a lot of homophobes and people in my uh, Mm -hmm. ads and mentions going after me for bullshit. And, you know, sometimes I will look, but I never say anything kind. I just like leave them alone. I don't jump on them. And, you know, reading about what you you did with Jeremy is making me thinking maybe I need to be nicer to these people who I think are drilling holes in the bottom of our ship of state and sinking our democracy. I have tried kindness towards uh, Trump or whatever, but, you know, who knows what he sees or does. And and also, I think his pathology doesn't leave him open. I do think he's the only change he makes is when people are kind to him because he's a narcissist and he doesn't respond to criticism or anything like that. There's no reason Obama during the birther situation should have invited him to the White House. That wasn't on him and he could go fuck himself. But if he did and he just said, hey, I love The Apprentice and just wanted to say hi, he would have changed you know, he would have left there and been, yeah, he's a nice guy, you know, and he's from mm. Hawaii. And, uh, you know, and he would have never run for president. Now, there's no reason for Obama to have done that or have known to do that or, you know, but it's just the truth. You know, that's his the pathology, I, I believe, you know. But I also just think, like, when we say nasty things to people who are clearly just uh, powerless, it doesn't change them, mm-hmm. you know. But, kind, well, this is what I've learned from my show, facts. And polls and numbers don't change people's minds. They dig in deeper. Um, But feelings change people. So that's where I'm at right now. You know, I interviewed this guy, uh, uh, Father Greg, who started Homeboy Industries. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you don't make friends with your wounds, if you don't make friends with your wounds, then you'll be tempted to despise the wounded. You know, so like all these things are just kind of simmering in my head and blowing my mind a little and stuff. And I'm just trying to put it into practice. But it doesn't mean I won't still be sometimes cunty on the Internet. And also, I think there's a difference when you're speaking truth to power, you know, Mm -hmm. to the wealth addicts, to the people who are have power and are using it um, to fill this unfillable hole of like wealth addiction on the backs of um the citizens uh, on the know. backs of people I, I like Jeremy. If we didn't have so many people who were addicted yeah. to wealth in this country, Jeremy maybe would have had. If we were a, a sane country, we would have socialized medicine. We would have Medicare and healthcare for all, as they do in hmm, Norway, which no one seems to be anxious exactly. to leave for the United States. Uh, and, and he, you know, there exactly. wouldn't be so many people who are in so much pain in the first place. Okay, we're a we're a long way from four year olds putting things right, in so their sorry. butts. I know. No, that's not your fault. I wanted to talk about this. So, but are we? Donald Trump is just kind of a giant four-year-old who stuck the White House in his butt. What do we do? What's your advice for this woman with with this problem with this kid? If you had to, if it was a friend of yours, my four-year-old sticking things in the butt, what do I say? Well, I think because of where her husband and she, how they were raised and how they're trying to like counter that, they're not realizing that it's okay. They regulate, they don't, they tell him not to put Legos in his mouth, I'm sure, you know, he's four. You, you, you shouldn't be putting anything in your orifices when you're four. It, that needs to be regulated by your parents. And there's no shame in saying, don't put that Lego in your mouth. Right. And so if they say, don't put that in your butt, there's no shame in that either. It, they don't, just don't put shame around it. Exactly. That, that was, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. You know, one day your son, caller, is going to grow up mm. and 
you know, oral sex comes standard these days for the most part, probably going to use his mouth to perform oral sex. And yet as a parent of a four-year-old, how many times have you yanked something out of your four-year-old's mouth and said, no, no, you don't put golf balls in your mouth. You don't put dirt from the floor in your mouth. You don't put turds from the cat you picked out of the cat litter box in your mouth. You say that all the time and you have a right as a parent to say, you don't put things in your butt. He'll work out when he's 13, 14, yeah, exactly. or 15, or 16, or 17, or 18, or whatever. Or he meets the first girl. If he's straight when he grows up and wants to peg him, that he can put things in his butt again when the time comes for other reasons. But right now, Absolutely. you should say, without feeling like you're outing yourself as a terrible, non-sex positive parent. If I were in your shoes, I think yeah. I was a pretty sex positive parent, I would say, don't put things in your butt. It's dangerous. Yeah, or even just the juices from your butt or your vagina, and then you touch your, you know, like my niece when she was little, I was always, you know, like all little girls digging into her vagina, digging, digging, digging. And all my nieces had glasses before they were even two. <laughs> and my sister was so worried about shaming her. And finally she said, sweetie, it's okay to do that, but it's private, you know? And, um, it, and also I worry because if you are in, put your fingers in your vagina and then you touch your glasses, I don't want you to get an infection in your eye. And so then a few days later, she saw her digging into her vagina again. And she said, sweetie, remember what I told you? And she said, and my niece said, um, no, this hand is full of my vagina and this hand is full of my glasses. <laughs> and my sister was like, okay, <laughs> that makes sense. I think because they so healthily unlearned the, the survival skills they had, you know, that were maybe fucked up as children and they're now in a healthy place and now they're they've gone not overboard but that that mm -hmm. emphatic like unlearning of their own damage has mm -hmm. made them now you can overcorrect come from the other side you know yeah yeah on sex even on sex positivity sex negativity you can overcorrect you have to find that balance yeah there doesn't have to be shame in telling your kid don't put uh, a legos in your butt or whatever um just like you say with your mouth like as simple as that but yeah can you stick around for a couple more questions? Yeah. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old gay man living in the Pacific Northwest. I've been officially out since 2012 when I told all my close friends and family, who all accepted me unconditionally. It then took me over two more years to become fully comfortable with my identity as a gay man. I've actually started doing stand-up and talk about being gay extensively, which has really only helped me feel even more comfortable about my sexuality. But despite the fact that I'm out and accepted by everyone important in my life, and I'm more comfortable with my identity and sexuality than I've ever been in my entire life, I have yet to have any kind of romantic or sexual relationship at all. I'm a virgin in literally every sense of the word. Honestly, the closest thing I've ever gotten to even kissing someone was when I held hands with my one and only girlfriend in high school. And while I'm friends with a lot of queer women and non-binary individuals, I don't know a lot of gay men who I feel comfortable enough to bring this up with. I've been able to handle being a virgin for like the past several years, but now that I'm talking about my sexuality more publicly, I like I almost feel like I'm kind of a fraud and that claiming to be part of the gay community, but I haven't actually explored that aspect of my life fully. So it's getting a little harder not to say anything. And I don't believe that I'm asexual, and I do want to try to date and have sexual relations, but I also want to be honest with a potential partner because I feel that them knowing I was still a virgin, virgin would help alleviate at least some of the performance anxiety. Like, in other words, them knowing I don't know what I'm doing would help make me feel less stressed about not knowing what I was doing. 
So my questions are, how big of a deal is late in life virginity within the gay male community, generally speaking, of course? Uh, how should I broach the subject with a potential partner or if, should I even bring it up? And do you have any advice on how I could finally get past whatever anxiety is I have about not being experienced and how to start getting that experience? So he's uh, gay and it's, he's incorporating stuff about being gay, material about being gay into his stand-up. But he's never actually had gay sex. Is he violating some unwritten code of you got to tell the truth and stand up by letting people assume that he's had gay sex if he tells him he's gay? Uh, no, because he's gay. If he's gay, he's gay. You know, that's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a being. It's a state of mind. If, he, if that's how he sees himself. I mean, it's, it's a label, you know, and, and if he wants to talk about it on stage. But what I would encourage is, and sometimes we don't see the most obvious thing. And I still, all the time, people will go, well, talk about, say that, you know, mm -hmm. he should say that, he say that in his act, say, uh, talk, do all his material and then have a revelation, you know, go, uh, I say all of this. And by the way, I've, I'm a virgin. I've, I've not, you know, I mean, there's so much to talk about within that. That said, if he's not ready to talk about it, it it's as long as it's his truth, uh, or a truth, it's okay. You know, I, I know that feeling like if you talk about your job or if you talk about your boyfriend, you've got great boyfriend material and now you've broken up. Can you still use that boyfriend material? Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yeah, I think so. But I think you can also get a little meta and say, uh, and by the way, we broke up, but this is the material or, or, ch or change it, reframe it. But I think that's such like, um, an exciting area to talk about. And plus he'll probably get so laid from that. <laughs> I was um, just thinking that, that he'll have to change it again. You know, there's going to be somebody in one of his audiences who hears him say that and thinks that they might be able to help him with that problem. Who might volunteer to help him with that problem. This is the world bringing truth to his front door. You know, like this is an opportunity to be messy on stage and life is, isn't clean. Like he maybe he has very set jokes. And mm -hmm. he's going on stage and saying jokes, but he can just weave those jokes within just talking and being and talking about his actual reality. And it will be even better. I'm not a stand up comic, but I know I, I go to stand up comedy. I, I like comedians as a gay audience member. I think it would be really interesting as somebody who is not a gay virgin to hear a gay comedian talk about what he thinks gay sex is going to be like and whether it jibes or not with. You know, yeah. I know it to be like, and I think there's a lot of comedic juice there potentially, caller, that you could mine if juice is a mineable substance. I'm not sure. <laughs> Infinite angles on this. Uh, he also asked uh, how big a deal late in life virginity is in the gay community. And, you know, that's the wrong question. Uh, late in life virginity is a big deal for some people. And anyone who's a late in life virgin does not want to sleep with someone who thinks it's a big deal. Or, you know, shames them for it or thinks that there's something wrong with them or they're broken or defective because they manage to get to 25 or 30 or 40 and be a virgin. You want to be with somebody who doesn't shame you for that, who doesn't think it's a big deal and is happy to be with you. You know, people with this problem, like, oh, I'm 30 and I'm a virgin. I'm afraid if I tell someone they're not going to want to sleep with me. You don't want to sleep with somebody who doesn't want to sleep with you because you're a virgin at 30. That, that's going to be a terrible person for you to have your first experience with. So, caller, I would tell you. Absolutely. Be open about it. Be out about it. Some people, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be a deal breaker. They're not going to want to fuck you. You don't want to fuck those people. It's a sorting hat. And it's going to help you find the right person to lose your virginity to. One more question, Sarah. Here we go. Yeah. 
Hey there, Dan. I'm a longtime listener, cisgendered, straight female in a long-term monogamous relationship from the Pacific Northwest. I've been with my boyfriend for just barely under three years now, and I've been struggling with insecurities surrounding emotional reactions when I think about my boyfriend being in a sexual relationship with other women, and even something as downright irrational as knowing that he might find another girl attractive. Like my logical head is totally okay with it and knows that it's natural as I consider myself a sex positive person who likes the idea of non-monogamy and or even being monogamish. But when I think of him doing these things, I get this overwhelming negative gut reaction. I'm guessing a lot of this has to do with my own crappy relationship with my self-image and even worry that whatever girls come into the picture would somehow take away from how he feels about me. All throughout our relationship, as frequent listeners of the show, we've talked about having a threesome and that it would be something we could do to explore new sexual things together, and even the possibility of being monogamous in the future. But recently, when he brought up a threesome as something we could do, like, now, I freaked out and threw a terrible fit, which I was pretty embarrassed about after the fact. He's not pressuring me in any way and keeps telling me that he's very happy with our sex life and doesn't need something like this immediately. And on a side note, I did have a threesome before this relationship, and it was one of the best sexual experiences I've ever had. Although one difference is that it was with two guys that I wasn't actually in a relationship with. My boyfriend does know about this and actually thinks it's pretty hot. I guess I really wish I could be as excited about experiencing the same thing with him. I'm now beginning to realize that this is probably something I'm going to have to work on internally, rather than just being magically okay with it someday. So I guess my main question is, is someone whose rational mind totally knows that it's a fairy tale to expect your partner to only be attracted to you and not want to fuck other people in a long-term relationship? What could I do to stop being so insecure and jealous? What steps can I take to work on being okay with this and to follow through with things that I can see myself wanting in the future, like open relationships, and at the very least, threesomes? Any advice? Conquering your fears? I think she's feeling guilty over something that is just a part of who she is. You know, like it, it's it's okay to want monogamy. It's okay to totally understand not being, you know, monogamous and respecting that. But it's also okay if it, it bothers you to respect that. Now, she likes being with other people because she knows that her partner is the person she loves but she has stress the other way around. Maybe that's stuff to look at in herself, but maybe giving up her monogamishness um, makes it worth it and just saying like, well, be monogamous, but I don't know the answer really. I mean, I, I, what do you think? Well, I don't think jealousy is not necessarily something you ever conquer. I think it's an experience you, it's a, it's a feeling you experience and sometimes you have to roll with it. And it's a good check often and a good control, even on people who are non-monogamous relationships. If you're feeling jealous, maybe you guys are neglecting your primary bond and, and, and taking each other for granted. You need to check in and it's a good way to ensure that you aren't losing each other as you pursue other partners. Um, sometimes jealousy is the exact right feeling and non-monogamous people experience jealousy. Monogamous people experience jealousy. doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's not something you can ever conquer or defeat. You're always going to feel that feeling to some extent in any relationship. But I would say to her, you know, you've you've been in this relationship for three years. Maybe you're not ready to be non-monogamous. Maybe you're still in a, a phase where monogamy is the right choice for you emotionally. 
uh, romantically. Maybe that will be always the case for you in a committed relationship where if you're not in a committed relationship, you could have a three-way, you could have a sexual adventure. But when you're in a committed relationship, what your heart needs and what you need emotionally for, for your emotional security is a monogamous commitment. And that doesn't mean you're defective or broken. It means you are someone who monogamy is the correct and, and, and right relationship model for. You know, we don't want to move from a world where everyone who is non-monogamous was told there was something wrong with them to a world where everyone who is monogamous feels like there's something wrong with them. And, you know, hipster, progressive folks who monogamy seems to be the right choice of them, who know a lot of non-monogamous people, who get it, who understand how non-monogamy is valid, start shaming themselves for preferring monogamy. Find out what works for you, what's right for yeah. you, and do that thing. Accepting that what's right for you can change over time, change over the course of your life, change over the course of a relationship's life. So what's right for you and your boyfriend yeah. right now, roll with it. We can revisit this conversation. Monogamy is forever an opt-in choice. You can revisit the conversation five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Life is long. An open-ended relationship is potentially forever, meaning one of you is going to die and then it's over. You can keep talking to each other and keep fucking each other. And if you only ever fuck each other, Yahtzee, good for you. If you reach a point where you're ready Yahtzee. to fuck somebody else <laughs> together or separately on your own, but with each other's consent and it's ethical non-monogamy, awesome. But stop pressuring yourself at this moment. Respect what you're feeling. You know, it's okay. And you can change or you can stay, but like always just checking in. And um, if, if, if she's feeling guilt or stress about it because she's afraid she'll lose him that's something else to look at one last question before we let you go you're in new york city you're working on a musical that is what i want written on my tombstone when i die in new york city working on a musical can you tell us anything about it i'm a musical theater queen for the musical theater queens out there listening what are you bringing to the broadway stage oh my god it's a very long process. We probably will probably be on stage in 2020, maybe 2019, but probably 2020, which is so close for us now. It's been so many years, but it's, I wrote a memoir called The Bedwetter. It's one year of a 10 year old girl's life who um, struggles with bedwetting and clinical depression uh, at a time when her parents are getting divorced. And um, it's, a, it's funny. I, I think it's, it's, it's got hard jokes and, and good, super hooky songs. And we're excited about it. If you're involved, I'm sure it's going to be great. Uh, Sarah Silverman, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Everybody out there who can hear my voice, you have to check out. I love you, America. Sarah's new talk show, not late night. You can watch it anytime. Her new talk show on Hulu. Sarah Silverman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I adore you. Hi, Dan. This is a 27 year old married female. And um, I've been with my husband for about five years. Uh, anyway, I have a bit of a quandary. Recently gave birth, well, about a year and a half ago, gave birth to our first son. Um, and I decided when I was pregnant that I wanted to breastfeed. My son has recently self-weaned. Uh, and my husband has been incredibly supportive of my breastfeeding journey, so to speak. But here's the problem. Ever since breastfeeding started, I have been completely unable to see my breasts as sexual objects. My son is very attached to them, obviously, as his only source of nutrients for the first six months of his life. And so now during sex, I just, anytime my husband tries to touch my, my tits, I just completely freeze up and am totally turned off. Um, and 
you know, he's been super respectful and he understands completely. My husband does. Um, but we've been together long enough that we sort of have a, I don't know, sexual routine for lack of a better word. And he, my kids have always been part of that routine. And now, you know, sometimes just automatically my husband will reach up for them and I will just immediately go tense or smack his hands down and it just ruins the mood. Um, so, you know, he, he's not intentionally pushing boundaries or anything. He's just, it's automatic and I feel terrible and it, we don't get a lot of time to ourselves now with the child. So, you know, any sex we do have, it's not enough. And then to have it ruined like that, I don't know what to do. And, you know, I understand that it might be a price of admission that he is willing to pay, but I know he's bummed about it. I mean, it's gotten to the point where I have to keep my shirt on during sex for me to even be comfortable. And that, that sucks. Uh, I might want to mention also, you know, he's already paid a price of admission in, in that during my early, early adolescence, I had a very traumatic experience. And so I don't like uh, giving head and he has always accepted that graciously. So I don't want to ask him to pay another price, but I don't know what to do. Uh, how do I get over this? What do I do? I don't want you just in your own head conceptually to lump in the trauma that you experienced, the sexual trauma that you experienced that left you incapable of giving head and props to your husband that he doesn't make an issue of it and props to you that you allowed him to pay that price of admission and you shouldn't feel guilty about that at all. But don't lump that experience in, just don't link it with breastfeeding and the impact that had on you. I don't want to become a self-fulfilling prophecy that somehow in retrospect, you're going to understand or think of the breastfeeding experience as similarly traumatic and it left this groove carved into you that you can never escape from. Instead, what I think you should be telling yourself, for the last 1.5 years, assuming that your son self-weaned very recently, your breasts were a utilitarian fucking pantry. They had this role that was non-sexual and in addition to draining the breast milk – day and after day after day, multiple times a day, your infant in a way drained the sexual connection that you felt to your breasts. And it's going to take some time for that to kick back into gear. Give yourself a break. Do not guilt trip yourself. Allow yourself to wear that shirt to bed or wear a bra that is very visible that says to your husband, reminder, flashing bright red bra or dark black bra that this is a no-go zone for the moment. And enjoy the sex that you can enjoy with each other without your breasts being in play, except for visually, and that's not nothing. In addition, schedule some time with your husband, maybe while the baby's napping, while your toddler is napping, where you guys are not going to have sex, but you are going to be intimate. You're going to lay together. You're going to cuddle. And during those times, gradually allow him to just cup your breasts, to hold you, to lay together with his hands on your breasts, not needing them not manipulating them, not going for the nipples, just relaxing together and you relaxing and breathing through the anxiety that you feel, that desire to like bat his hands away. You make a little bit of an effort at that time to let him hold you and hold your breasts too. So you begin to make a new association, a new tactile skirting around the conscious mind association with your breasts and the nerve endings in your breasts, and the man in your bed, and the man you love. 
And these times when you cuddle and you're working on this together are not times where either of you can upgrade to sex. This is just about holding and cuddling with a little incidental breast cupping. And it's fine if he gets hard, but you don't have to do anything about it. And he doesn't get to do anything about it either. You're just going to lay together. But your experience isn't unique. I'm sure we'll hear from some callers with similar experiences. For the last year and a half, your breasts were associated with parenting, with exhaustion, with puke, and with poop, and with an infant, a new infant. The old association, that will reemerge in time. Your erotic imagination will reclaim that territory for you, and you have to allow it to be for you first. Masturbate. Get stoned now that you're not breastfeeding anymore. One night when dad's at home, get stoned. Get a vibrator. Go to a room alone. Sit in front of a mirror. Look at your breasts. Love your breasts. and Give yourself an orgasm and carve new grooves. Make new erotic conscious connections between your breasts and your pleasure. Your pleasure, not your infant's needs. And once you've reconnected with your breasts as an erogenous zone of yours, you'll be in a better place. You'll be able to allow your breasts to also be an erogenous zone for your husband. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old bisexual woman from Indiana and currently living in Colorado. My question is regarding coming out to my mom. My sister is also bisexual, and when she came out to my family a few years ago, my mom had a big problem with it. She's never been particularly religious, uh, but was suddenly very concerned with my sister's eternal soul and didn't want her girlfriend in our house, and it was just a mess and really damaged her relationship with my sister. I came out to my dad a few months back when I started dating my current girlfriend, and he was nice and sort of supportive, uh, but discouraged me from coming out to my mom, especially before our big family Christmas trip to Florida coming up soon. We're all going to spend a week together, and he basically said he doesn't want it to ruin the holidays. I was thinking about waiting until maybe the last day of the trip and talking to her then, but that feels weird and dishonest, like I will have been lying to her face all week. Uh, but I'm already lying to her, and I'm really done hiding my sexuality. I want her to know who I am and to stop asking if I have a boyfriend, but I'm pretty sure she will take it poorly, and I want to take the path of least destruction. Do you think my dad has a point? Should I keep it to myself for now? If I don't do it on this trip, it'll be a while before I see her in person again and can have a real conversation. What do you think I should do? I want to say there's a special place in hell, but I think I'm going to go with special place in purgatory because purgatory you can get out of. There's a special place in purgatory for closeted LGBT siblings who let their out-of-the-closet LGBT siblings twist in the wind and suffer the blows and anger and fury and condemnation of their homophobic or biphobic or transphobic parents. You have a responsibility to come out not just for your own sake, not just to tell your truth and be authentically who you are with your parents and be known by them, but for your sister's sake. Your sister comes out to your mother and your mother blows up at her in this awful way. I can understand why that might give you pause, why you might have hesitated to come out after seeing what your mom pulled on your sister. But you're 22 years old. You're grown up. You got a girlfriend. You may end up in a long-term same-sex relationship, come the fuck out to your mother. Even if you didn't have a sister who was out and your mother was slapping around in the way that she is, come the fuck out to your mom. Why are you so fucking afraid of your mom? Fuck your mom. Your mom needs to get the fuck over it. 
and one queer kid didn't do the trick, maybe two queer kids will do the trick. But your mom's going to be dead one day. I'm here from the future to tell you that you are highly likely to outlive your parents and you will have your sister. Your sister will be your – until you're married, your next of kin, your immediate next of kin and after you're married, still a very close kin and someone you're going to be able to rely on your whole life. What is that famous quote? Family is where they have to take you in or home is where they have to take you in because family – your sister is going to be that person over the course of your life. Lovers, spouses may come and go but siblings – Hopefully, you're going to be there forever. Think of the future. Think of the kind of relationship you're going to want with your sister when your parents are gone. It might negatively impact your relationship with your sister in the future when you want it to be rock solid if there were decades when your mother was still alive and your mom was being horrible to your sister and you were watching all of that unfold from inside your closet and letting your sister take that. On her own, instead of linking arms with your sister and saying, hey, mom, I have a girlfriend too, so I guess nobody's coming home for the holidays. Solidarity is called for in a circumstance like this. Even if you're not queer, if you're watching your parents beat the shit out of your gay brother and telling him he's not allowed to come home with his boyfriend and you are a straight sibling, you call your parents and you say, I'm not coming home with my partner or my wife or your grandkids either, so long as you... Treat my brother like this, my brother's partner like this, my brother's husband like this. Take a stand, gay or not, queer or not, bi or not, for your siblings when they're being poorly treated by your parents or abused by your parents, psychologically, spiritually abused by your parents. Take a fucking stand. Come the fuck out. Don't be so afraid of your mommy. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescues. I could really use some help. I've been with my husband now for almost eight years, and during that whole time, he has been so kind about the fact that I hate blowjobs. Um, it's actually gone so far as I feel guilty accepting oral sex on me uh, because I know that I don't want to reciprocate. Um, I think it all stems from my first relationship where I felt very pressured and my boyfriend was not a big fan of the word no, but that is the exact opposite of the relationship I'm in right now. So what I would love to know is what can my husband and I do together to get me to enjoy giving blowjobs? My husband's got good hygiene. He never pressures me, does everything right that we can think of. Um, just if you could give us some more ideas of what I could do or we could do together, I would really appreciate it. I'm really sorry that your previous boyfriend was so rapey. You describe it as not a big fan of the word no. That seems pretty rapey to me. That said, there are people out there who didn't have rapey boyfriends or experiences of sexual trauma or assault who don't like giving blowjobs. Some people just don't like giving head and that is fine. I have said in the past that oral comes standard. Any model that arrives without oral should be immediately returned to the lot and that's a generally applicable rule but we are allowed to have our preferences and we're allowed to opt out of certain things if we don't enjoy them and we may find ourselves with partners who enjoy the thing that we don't enjoy 
and will do that thing for us that we don't necessarily want to do for them. And that's also fine if your partner is content. If that's a price of admission your partner is willing to pay to be with you, then you allow your partner to pay that price. But that's not what you were looking for. You weren't looking for absolution or the get out of blowjobs free card. You were asking me to how to get there. How can you learn to like blowjobs? The first thing to let go of is the idea if you put a dick in your mouth that stays there until that person comes. Giving someone head is often arduous work. It's a blow job, not a blow party for that reason. It takes sustained effort and focus. And it can be intimidating to look at that dick and think, okay, if I put that in my mouth, if I initiate a blow job, I'm in for 10, 15, 20 minutes of having my face fucked. Do I want that? And some people, because they don't want to go the distance, won't even do a little oral foreplay. But you can, instead of thinking of doing blow jobs, do some things that are blow job adjacent. You can have some oral foreplay. You can nuzzle. You can take baby steps toward putting that dick in your mouth if indeed you ever want that dick in your mouth. And maybe you don't and it might be because of your experience with your rapey ex-boyfriend or it may be independent of that. Maybe you just don't want to do this and it will never work for you. There are a couple things that don't work for me that I don't want to do. And it's fine for you to have a couple things that don't work for you that you don't want to do. But if you want to get there, please don't go the chocolate saucer out. Please don't go get some whipped cream. Dump whipped cream on somebody's body. Looks good for a second. Tastes decent for 30 seconds. And two minutes later, it smells like some baby barfed all over your partner's crotch. Don't do it. Don't do whipped cream. Don't do chocolate sauce. Oh, my God. It just looks like a scat scene if you look at pictures of it afterwards. Don't do it. Dessert is for after not during. But go down there, lick, nuzzle, suck a little bit, incorporate masturbation, incorporating him masturbating himself while you're darting around down there with your tongue out and looking him in the face. If you're worried about feeling dehumanized or used, sustaining eye contact during oral is a good way to snap that association. You're still a human being. He still sees you. You're not just a sensation. And make it, instead of a blowjob, Oral enhanced masturbation where you're jerking him off with a little oral here and there or he's jerking himself off with a little oral nuzzling here and there from you courtesy of you. And that really is when you watch the best blowjobs go down. It's often a combo of hands and mouth. It's often a hand blowjob, blow hand job together. It's an amalgam, not a one or the other. And taking the pressure off your mouth, your throat, your gag reflex by pivoting to and incorporating your right hand or your left hand or his right hand can make that blowjob seem less like work, less intimidating, and perhaps a lot less like the blowjobs your rapey ex-boyfriend forced you to give. Hey, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old gay guy living in Texas, and I have a question about monogamishamy. So I'm someone who's definitely relationship oriented and see myself, you know, falling in love and having a husband one day, but I'm really into threesomes. And so my ideal partner, like, would be someone who is monogamish or open to monogamish me, but I just don't really know how to go about finding that. Like, is it something that I should put on my Tinder profile right at the start? Or something that I should bring up, like, 
when I'm getting to know them or something that I wait until we're in like an established relationship and then bring it up. Like my concern with waiting for a while is that if you like establish monogamy and then go back and say, Hey, like I want to do this instead that it's something you didn't agree to. And it can be something that the person, I don't know, doesn't, feels that like it's not fair for you to ask of them since you agreed to something else but if you bring it up right at the start or post it like on your dating profile I'm afraid that someone's going to think that I'm not serious and can't make that commitment and just want to mess around so I just like you know I hear about monogamous for me and like I've had threesomes with people in relationships but I just have never really heard you know, how to go about it myself. So there's a funny story about researchers who were looking at monogamous gay male couples. And when they dove into the data, when they interviewed the couples who self-identified as monogamous, they found that often many of these self-identified monogamous same-sex male couples had three ways, frequently had three ways. But since that was something that they did together, they regarded those three ways as monogamous behavior. They only had sex with each other. And sometimes with each other and another person, but only with each other and another person. And that was, by their lights, monogamy. I think monogamishamy is a better way to describe that, as do you, caller. But there's a lot of guys out there who want monogamous relationships, and they define those monogamous relationships as something that might also include, once in a while, a very special guest star. The dilemma that you face is when to share this information about yourself, that you're interested in a committed relationship, but you are also a fan of three ways and you would like to have love, stability, commitment, but also with your partner, these sexual adventures. And that's a kind of kink card laying on the table thing. You don't want to put that on your profile. You don't want to say that right away. First date, first hookup. Hey, if this gets serious, just so you know, I'm into three ways. And so if it gets serious, you have to be into three ways too. Not because the person you're saying that to isn't or might not also be interested in having three ways with a long-term partner, but because blurting something out like that, too soon, right away, before you really gotten to know each other is evidence of bad judgment, poor impulse control, and people want in their partners, in addition to someone perhaps to have three ways with, someone with good judgment and good impulse control. Wait. Wait a few months. Get to know somebody. Date. There's going to come a point where you start talking about sexual fantasies, sexual experiences, your sexual histories, and you really open up to each other and begin to share. And at that point, you can say, I've had three ways with committed couples and I really enjoy them. And when I imagine my future, husband, love, commitment, stability, family, I imagine I want that kind of relationship. We're really a team, the two of us, strong connection, strong sexual connection. And occasionally we have a sexual adventure with another person. We have a three-way with someone else and we get variety together. And then see what he says. He may say that he's not interested in that and you may be asked to pay the price of admission of foregoing three ways to be with this person and that might be at the price of admission you're willing to pay. I know a lot of people who paid that exact price of admission. Being with him means no three ways. I love him. I want to be with him. No three ways. Who now have three ways. Whose partners came around. Whose partners eventually wanted to have those kinds of sexual adventures too. So you never know. It is a good thing, though, to put your wants and needs on the table. Not right away, not on your Tinder profile, not on your first date, not on your first hookup, not on your first seven or eight dates or seven or eight hookups. But when that moment comes, 
where you're opening up, sharing, disclosing. That's the time. Hey, Dan, 31-year-old straight female from um, the Midwest. I'm calling because I am currently in a long-distance relationship with my boyfriend of four years. Uh, when he visited me a couple of weeks ago, he mentioned to me that he would have to take some work calls or texts, which was fine with me. However, I noticed that he was texting someone a little bit more frequently. Um, he was open about who this was. It was a coworker who was female. And we had to talk about it. And he did not text this person for the rest of his day. However, since that time, he's been tagged on Facebook by this person multiple times, different sorts of, you know, inside jokes and memes. And I also noticed that he was uh, getting this girl a CD for Christmas. I believe I was justified in, I guess, overreacting, but he really took it personally. He said that I accused him of cheating, which was not the case. I just said this was breeding grounds for emotional or physical cheating, either one-sided or both-sided. I'm just wondering how I can unpack my feelings about this. I'm not sure if I was overreacting, it was over a CD, or if I'm justified in this. And I'm also wondering how can I, I guess, do better in my long-distance relationship with him. My gut reactions, listen to your call, I, I had two of them. Where the fuck did he find a CD? And where did he find a girl who has a CD player? And my other reaction, and I'm really sorry to just blurt this out, sounds like he's fucking her or wants to fuck her. And wanting to fuck her shouldn't be a problem. You're in an LDR. Even if you were living in the same place, people get crushes on people all the time. People aren't just attracted to their partners. We are not enough for our partners sexually. Even if the relationship is closed, we will spare ourselves a lot of grief in monogamous, committed, long-term, closed relationships if we don't police our partners for evidence of what we should just accept to be true about our partners, which is occasionally they're going to run across somebody that if they weren't with us and committed to us, they might want to fuck. They might want to be with and they might become briefly infatuated with. Now, you don't want your partner playing with fire or kicking a box of nitroglycerin around. You don't want your partner to feel so comfortable with their crush, their infatuation that they wind up having an emotional affair that undermines your relationship with them. And I think a little jealousy in a case like that where you say, hey, 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 our commitment is to each other. We need to make sure our focus is on each other and the emotional attention or affection that you are pouring all over this other person it rightly should be directed toward me and is making me a little insecure seeing all of that poured upon someone else. But just the fact that you're LDR, that there's this woman in his life that he's a little bit of a crush on, that by itself isn't a problem. Buying her CDs, buying her Christmas gifts, texting, private jokes all day long, that's emotional affair territory and you have a right to be a little upset about that or a little threatened by that, a little insecure about that. Particularly if he's fucking her, which was, again, my reaction during your call and you shared your insecurities and concerns with him and he blew up at you. And maybe he blew up at you because he hasn't fucked her and wouldn't fuck her. And how dare you think such a thing? Or maybe that was a strategy. Maybe he blew up at you and was so affronted so that you would doubt your own instincts, 
So you would wind up feeling like the guilty party here and he could pivot to the wronged party when he's actually the guilty party and you're the wronged party. That is something that people will do. I think you're having an affair with this person. How could you think such a thing of me? You are a terrible person for thinking such a thing of me. So many people who are confronted by their partners, not just with suspicions but with evidence of an affair, react that way because it's often a good strategy. Particularly it's a good strategy for men to use against women because women are socialized to defer to men, prioritize their needs, to doubt their own common sense. But that wasn't your question. All of that was immaterial. You want to know how to talk about this with him without upsetting him. Bearing in mind that there may be a benefit and a strategy in his getting upset for him, you talk about it with him directly and honestly and without hesitation, without inhibition. You talk to him about how this makes you feel insecure and threatened and it's undermining his relationship with you, this connection with this other woman. And then – See what he does. If he continues to lavish attention and affection and CDs on this woman with the CD player, he's telling you that he doesn't give a shit about how you feel. He's telling you that you are not his priority. And you may need to pull the plug if that's what he tells you. Hi, Dan. This is regarding your comments on Mia Love on episode 586. I am a fellow Haitian American and I want to thank you so much for calling Mia out on her bullshit. You will not believe the amount of Haitians in this country support Donald Trump. And now, now that he's attacking them specifically, they want to speak up against them. Mia Love, keep all your Trump-loving, Republican-loving self, keep all that stuff. We don't need her to comment for us at all. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the woman whose boyfriend uh, used her vibrator and jacked off on her mirror and is Polly and sent the video to his other girlfriend. He just sounds inconsiderate. And I, I don't mean to be sex shaming him. I think it's fine for him to be sending videos to his other girlfriend. He disclosed he's Polly, but they've had a conversation about how this woman is like was uncomfortable about seeing photos on Facebook of him with other women. So why would he think it's a good idea to use her vibrator, jack off on her belongings and send that video to his other girlfriends? Like go to a public bathroom and send a video there. Like, can you make it less obvious? Don't ever recommend the sound of music as a movie to watch ever again. It is a horrible, horrible movie that is way too long because they keep singing the same songs over and over again. It's the only film I want the Nazis to win. They're behind the tombstones. Go get them. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 2064. You can also record your own audio if you want to email us a question. Record your own audio and email it to voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you like my political-ish rants at the top of this show, you should also be listening to Blabbermouth, where me and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders and snot-nosed millennial brat Rich Smith, who I like very much, I'm just teasing, we talk about the news of the week every week on Blabbermouth. Find it where you find your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Sarah Silverman on Twitter at Sarah K. Silverman. 
Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk me, Dan Nancy. I'll be back at you next week with an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for that one.